Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. And this is our 16th episode. Woohoo! Sweet 16, baby! Sweet Our 16. podcast can drive. Gonna spread my wings. Sweet 16. <laughs> 16. It's my chance to chance shine. Chance to shine. Sweet 16. <laughs> Hillary, call us. So, this is our 16th episode. So today we're going to be discussing The Birchbark House, which is a 1999 middle grade fiction novel by Louise Erdrich. Yes, so the book was a finalist for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and it is the first book in a five-book series known as the Birchbark House series. And the series covers 100 years in the life or many lives of one family. Also, the novel is illustrated by Louise Erdrich. In an interview, she talked about how so many of the things that she wanted to feature in the novel, so many of the illustrations were just objects that she had or that she had come across during her research. And she decided that if she wanted to include all these objects that she should just draw them herself. So. Oh, yeah. I love that. Ladies doing it for themselves. You said it. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> I will not. All right. Um, so some things that Erdrich has said about the Birchbark series from a Teaching Books interview in 2009, she said, I wanted to tell the story of where my mother's people had come from. We used to visit Madeline Island frequently. That's where my ancestors lived. I loved being there. It had such resonance for me. I started writing these books when I was on Madeline Island, Wisconsin, drawing illustrations of stones and crayfish. There are all sorts of little things in the books that are drawn from things that I picked up on the island. Now I go up to visit Lake of the Woods in Minnesota, where the next Birchbark books are set. The books are tracing our family tree through a series of generations, showing how they were driven from Madeline Island and Lake Superior, across Minnesota, and up past Lake of the Woods. My ancestors were driven by the westward expansion of European settlers who wanted more and more and more land. The Ojibwe were driven out onto the plains, and eventually, my great-grandparents ended up all the way over in Montana. Then they doubled back and got land in the Turtle Mountains, which are on the plains in the very center of North Dakota, up near the Canadian border. I thought this was an incredible familial journey, and I began to write it. Someone has said my series is like the opposite, or the other side, of the Little House on the Prairie series. Of course, those books everyone reads, including me. And when I heard that, I thought, I didn't start out that way, but I'm awfully glad when people do read the Birchbark House and the rest of the books, along with the Little House on the Prairie books. Because one of the things about the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that always distresses me is Ma's racism. She's a terrible racist about Native people. And there's also the inherent racism in the structure of the Wilder books themselves. The simple acceptance of the fact that the Little House characters could just go along and take whatever they wanted, and that the Native people were apparently vanishing into the sunset. The Natives were portrayed as vanishing people who were going to go away, and that's all that one could feel about them. But what was really happening was the Native people who were being pushed out of the regions that were being settled had been disposed of their land through a very painful means. Someone in the tribe had usually signed treaties, but they hadn't wanted to. They'd want to just stay where they were, but they were forced to sign treaty after treaty with the U.S. government. And so then she goes on to talk about how this is a part of U.S. history that often gets glossed over in schools. And she says, the Native people are always looked at as always the same kind of people. They have a couple of feathers sticking up and they seem strange and foreign. They're always imagined as being way back in the past and they don't have families. 
Readers don't know that Native peoples had a warm family structure to their lives, and readers don't know that Native people had and still have great senses of humor and that there's this humanity that's been lost in the public perception about Native American people. In writing the birch bark books, I wanted to make the books very accessible. I wanted people to enter into this world, and children especially, to identify and enter into a world where they are among a Native American family. This family had its angers, trials, happiness, pain, heroism, desperation, and annoyances. I want readers to have a more complicated grasp of Native American people and realize that people have survived. People to this very day are speaking their language and living in their own culture and have a tremendous variety in their cultures. That's what I want to do with these books. Wow. Uh, a wonderful ambition, I think, and very well realized in the Birch Absolutely. I think especially for 1999, you know, when I would argue that pretty much any book that was being written for this age group that was about Native families that was being widely read by the public mm -hmm. was probably written by white authors. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is Kaya's mm -hmm. series from American Girl. But before that, you know, there was just Kirsten and the one vanishing episode she has with a family on, you know, on the plains. And again, a very similar situation to the to the Wilder family where they're settlers, they have a right to go through and take what they want and and do what they need to do to survive. And actually, I will talk about this more because I found an article that kind of reviewed some books that had Native American characters from the 90s and early 2000s. And I mean, just astonishingly racist, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm. this book was around when I was a kid, but I didn't know about it and never read it. And I wish I would have because I do think it, I, I think it's better than the Little House books. And I think it... I think it's more interesting, and mm -hmm. I think Louise Erdrich is a very, very gifted writer. But it, it does provide a really important counterpoint, because a lot of times in kids' books when or in movies, when Native American characters appear, they're like one-offs, you know? They're like these yeah. isolated people. They're like the special of the episode. or <laughs> Yes, know? yeah. They're like a, the little... It's like featuring... A Native American. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. And they're presented in the context of a white world. And I think these books are really special for the ways that the family is the center point of the story. Yes, I 100% agree. So like we, I mentioned, Native American history is not something that tends to be talked about in school or focused in school nearly as much as other aspects of American history, like the American Revolution, for example, or as Terry and I experienced, Jamestown was something that... <laughs> My class just finished our Jamestown unit. Yeah, Virginia schools love Jamestown. I would say that my class got the right takeaway, though. Yeah, good. I'm excited to talk about this book with you specifically because I think the questions it brings up about teaching about American history are really important. It's so interesting because you literally teach them from this context of this idea that time started with the arrival of the settlers, you know, that I'm supposed to say that they arrived in Virginia. Well, they didn't arrive in Virginia. Mm -hmm. You know, they arrived in Senecamaca, which was what the Powhatan called the area. Yeah. How do you give them the context when the first conversation that they have about this is the first permanent English settlement, you know? Right. Anyway. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it's so much of the work of like a book like this is about moving the frame, you mm-hmm. know? And when you move the frame, you can see a different story. But if the framing is always white settlers and if that and they get to determine the timeline and the geography and everything, then you're not going we to We talk a, a lot picture. about books for students as being mirrors or windows. Mm. And I think that this book is a very valuable window, whereas I think for a lot of kids, obviously Little House on the Prairie is nobody in my class's mirror per se, Mm -hmm. but I think that a lot of, you know, white students would find it easier to identify culturally with the Wilder family, unless, of course, they have the opportunity for a long time to read books like The Birchbark House and it stops becoming this one-off extra special visit by (laughs) the one Native American. Right. So I wanted to give a little bit of context about the people that are in this book. It is a work of fiction, but based on Louise Erdrich's family tree. So Louise Erdrich is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. And so, like I said, she's writing this book about her family's history. The website Bookishly Bright provides some historical context for this novel. They say the Ojibwa, also known as Chippewa, lived on the shores of Lake Superior when contact was made with French traders in 1640. The Ojibwa were involved with trade, first among themselves and then with the French. This involvement with the French caused competition for natural resources in the area and eventually led the Ojibwa to become forced to rely on trading to survive. In the 17th and 18th centuries, settlement of Ojibwe lands brought them into competition with other tribes for land as they moved into the location that is present-day northern Minnesota. Now the Ojibwe's home is the Turtle Mountain Mountain Reservation located in Belcourt, North Dakota. Today, the tribe has 30,722 enrolled members with just over 16,500 Ojibwe living on the reservation. Omakayas, who is the main character of the Birch Bark House, is Ojibwa, and Erdrich belongs to the Turtle Mountain Band. And so that's from 2017. So to give you guys a little background on Louise Erdrich from the HarperCollins website, Louise Erdrich, a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, is the author of many novels, as well as volumes of poetry, children's books, and a memoir of early motherhood. Her novel, The Round House, won the National Book Award for Fiction, and Love Medicine and La Rose received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. Erdrich lives in Minnesota with her daughters and is the owner of Birchbark's Books, a small independent bookstore. And her most recent book, The Night Watchman, won the Pulitzer Prize. And a ghost lives in her creaky old house. <laughs> I love that. I love uh, it because it kind of feels like along with the daughters, it's like <laughs> mm-hmm. lives in Minnesota with her daughters and a ghost. <laughs> I want to know more about the ghost. Yeah, same. So she's probably best known as a writer of fiction for adults. But she does have these five children's books that are really wonderful. She also is a poet. She started off her writing career writing poetry. She's definitely best known for her novels, though. According to the Poetry Foundation, Louise Erdrich was born in Little Falls, Minnesota in 1954. She's the daughter of a Chippewa Indian mother and a German-American father. Erdrich explores Native American themes in her works with major characters representing both sides of her heritage. Many critics claim Erdrich has remained true to her Native ancestors' mythic and artistic visions while writing fiction that candidly explores the cultural issues facing modern-day Native Americans and mixed-heritage Americans. 
An essayist for contemporary novelists observed that Erdrich's accomplishment is that she is weaving a body of work that goes beyond portraying contemporary Native American life as descendants of a politically dominated people to explore the great universal questions, questions of identity, pattern versus randomness, and the meaning of life itself. Should we jump into a plot summary? Yeah, now that we've gotten you guys all excited about Louise Erdrich's wonderful work, it's time to tell you what the heck happens in this book. This story is told episodically over the course of a year, and it is divided into four seasons and tells the story of Omakeos, an eight-year-old Ojibwe girl and her family. So the novel opens with a prologue telling how a group of fur traders found Spirit Island and realized that it had been completely devastated by smallpox, and that the sole survivor on the island is a baby girl who the traders leave behind out of fear of infection. But as they're sailing away, uh, one trader thinks to himself that he might tell his wife about what they found. So in the first chapter, we meet Almakeas, who is named for her hop-like first steps. Her name means, I believe, Little Frog. Yes. We meet her family, uh, her grandmother, Nokomis, her mama, her sister, Angeline, and her brothers, Pinch and Baby Niwo. And her father, Dede, is a trader who is often gone. So the season is summer, and the family are preparing their summer home, which is a handmade birch bark house. She is hoping to avoid the job of scraping a moose hide, so Makayas runs an errand and visits Old Tallow, who is an eccentric and intimidating woman with a soft spot for Omakayas. On the way home, Omakayas comes across two bear cubs, which is very exciting. Right? I had flashbacks to every time I ever saw a bear as a child. Mm-hmm. Being like, time to touch. <laughs> Yeah, so Makayas, of course, is very excited, and she assumes that they've been abandoned, and so she plays with them and encourages them to follow her home. But then she is knocked to the ground by the mother bear, and despite the danger of the situation, Omakayas speaks respectfully to the mother bear and seems to be able to communicate with her, and the bear leaves her unharmed. And interestingly, Omakayas doesn't tell anyone about the experience, but she goes back to scrape the hide without complaint. Um, Which is the exact opposite of how I would have been. Yeah, if that had happened to me, I'd be telling everyone I ever Right? I would also use it as an excuse to do exactly nothing all day. If I got knocked on my ass by a bear and I came home and someone was like, now you need to continue scraping the moose hide, I would be like, the fuck I do? (laughs) You're lucky I'm here at all. (laughs) Do you know what kind of day I've had? (laughs) Oh my God. But I loved also just like the way that we embody this eight-year-old girl's mind in the book because of course my... 26 year old brain when I when she started like trying to feed the baby bears I was like oh dear god but I could also understand because like I also thought every animal I came across when I was a kid was abandoned and that I would need to raise it exactly so and every animal is a friend because every animal sees your innate good nature within you yeah like I believe that there was not a single animal that I couldn't touch because I just felt like the animal would see my heart (laughs) my best friend growing up lived we both lived right at the edge of the woods And I would walk up to her house and I would avoid the cows who would chase me mercilessly to get to the house. (laughs) And because we lived right at the edge of the woods, the bears would come right up into her backyard and her mom would would have to like hold the door, you know, and stand there with us because we were like, come on, like, please. (laughs) I just want to see the bear. Oh, my God. Especially if they were two babies. Like, right. 
I can understand how the urge to befriend is stronger than survival instinct. Yeah. <laughs> Me picking up every snake I find. Yeah. I saw a copperhead when I was in Richmond this weekend. Really? That's weird. Where? I know. Um, on the side, I think it got hit by a car. Oh. It, I poked it with a short stick. <laughs> so that was my omakeas moment. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and it didn't move at all. So, and it's the darndest thing. The next day in class, we did our Monday morning share and I shared that I had seen a copperhead over the weekend. And suddenly all of my students also shared that they had seen copperheads over the weekend. <laughs> and one boy shared that he had seen a two headed copperhead over the weekend. <laughs> Oh and what due to my thoughts? policy, right, of never accusing them of lying outright, I just had to sit there and be like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, did you ask them to describe what a copperhead looks like? I should have. I thought about it later. Did yours have polka dots or stripes? <laughs> <laughs> the one I saw was tie-dye. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing, later in the summer, Omakeas has the opportunity to watch her baby brother, Niwo, who she adores, uh, while the rest of her family go into town. And she loves her baby brother. She pretends that he's her baby sometimes. And the two seem to have a very special connection. And they share this like wonderful special day where she takes him down to the edge of the water and takes him out of his, his wrapping and his board. And you know, is able to comfort him and keep him safe. And after this, Omakeos feels even more protective and loving toward him than ever. Sometime later, the family is thrilled when Day-Day, Omakeos's father, returns from a trading trip. So he's a fur trader. And he puts Omakeos and Angeline in charge of defending the corn from crows. And the sisters end up catching a few crows in the net to have for dinner. And Omakeas saves the smallest one, and it becomes a family pet named Ondeg. And I love Ondeg. Ondeg is amazing. I love that she does get to live out that particular mm-hmm. childhood dream, which is to say every animal is a potential pet. Yeah, and specifically, she knew for sure this one was abandoned because she just murdered his entire family. <laughs> and that really is the safest way to be sure. <laughs> If you really want an orphan, make one. <laughs> As may squalor would have I was about to say, like quite literally, yes. <laughs> oh, Lord, that's a fun little inside joke if you haven't listened to the last episode. Yeah, get on. Oh, that. goodness gracious. All right, so Ondeg joins the family, and in the fall, the family starts to prepare for the colder months by moving from their birch bark house to their cabin in town. And they pack a food cache and they start harvesting the wild rice. But unfortunately, the wild rice is pretty meager. So it's a bit of a disappointing haul. So around the same time, Omakeas overhears a conversation between Dede and his friends, Albert Lapeteur. We don't know how to pronounce that. It's French. And Fishtail about the infinitely hungry Chimokaman, white settlers who are taking over the area. And there's talk that the Anishinaabe are going to be pushed uh, further and further out west. Sometime later, Mama is surprised to see Omakeos talking to the two bear cubs from the beginning of the novel. And on an errand with her granddaughter, Nokomis asks Omakeos if she can hear the medicines they're carrying, which Nokomis can. Nokomis is a we healer. S- yes. And we sort of start to feel 
Omakeas growing mm-hmm. as as a girl and her connection to, you know, her, her family and the world around her growing as well. Yeah. So that winter, Omakeas works on some sewing and beading projects with the other women, uh, which was a really sweet scene, including a pair of moccasins for Niwo. And meanwhile, the community starts preparing for the annual dance. But at the celebration, a sick trader comes in and, and is cared for by some of the villagers. But the next morning, they are horrified to find out that he has died from smallpox, which obviously puts the community and anyone who came in contact with him in incredible danger. Yes. So tragically, the following outbreak infects every member of Omakeos' family, except for herself and her grandmother, Nokomis. And the infected family members move into a heated bark lodge away from the cabin where Omakeos eventually joins them in an effort to care for them. A few days later, baby Niwo dies in her arms. The rest of her family begin to recover, but Omakeos sinks into a deep depression. That's such a painful scene. Oh, it's awful. I didn't see it coming. You know, I, I think I had been very prepared for the grandmother or even Day-Day to... Or Angeline, because she's the first one who got sick. Yeah. No, it's so heartbreaking that it's Niwo, and I didn't see it. When I read it, I put my hand, you know, I just, I gasped, you know, Mm -hmm. I put my hand over my heart. I was so shocked. Awful when she talks about how she realizes that he's died because he was really, really hot because he had a terrible fever from the smallpox. And then he's not hotter than her anymore and then he's colder than her and then Nokomis takes him away and it's just awful it's a horrifying thing to imagine an eight-year-old girl experiencing I know especially since she loves him so much she does she's you when you read it like you feel I've it's just it's so touching because you can feel how much she loves him I think um Erdrich does a really good job of making that tie feel so authentic. So at this point, the family has survived the outbreak, of course, with the exception of the baby, but now they're facing starvation. The winter food cache has completely run out, and they are down to what they can pull together. One thing, uh, Day-Day is a very accomplished chess player, and he just, like, hustles somebody. (laughs) He goes and he pretends to be doing a shit job at chess. (laughs) And then, and then obviously at the end, just sweeps the other guy. It's awesome. And gets them enough for some food. In addition to that, they also get some help from Andeg, who is, remember, the pet crow, who helps them find nuts and seeds from squirrel caches in the woods. And when Omakeas goes out on her own to find some more, she's attacked by one of Old Tallow's dogs. And what we know about Old Tallow is that she loves these dogs more than most people, um, but she also cares very deeply for Omakeas, and she kills the dog for hurting her. Yeah, that was very the sad scene. Surprising! I did not see that coming either. No, I didn't either. And we should say this is not the first time the yellow dog has gone after Omakeas. Yes, and Old Tallow says she talks to him like you know, like a family member. She says, "I warned you." Mm-hmm. You were being very foolish, and you kept, you kept fucking around, and now you're going to find out. <laughs> I also but, love that Ande helps out the family by finding, like, acorns that squirrels have stashed away in the trees, because I just love to imagine, like, a squirrel leaving for the day and then coming back, and all of his food is gone. <laughs> so 
stop. So I just got so sad. Oh, oh that poor baby. I know. So sad. Uh, oof. You know what this means, though? To save the squirrel from starving to death, now it can become a pet. That's right. It needs your help. Yes. So sometimes later, Nokomis has a prophetic dream about a buck waiting for Day-Day. And we've seen this buck before. I think it's called One Horn. But, you know, Day-Day hunts the buck and catches it. And the meat helps the family survive the winter, for which they are incredibly grateful. So spring begins and the community taps trees for maple syrup, which is very exciting and very much, you know, a feeling of relief and hope and new life. But, of course... Omakeos is still in great pain from losing her brother and she's missing him terribly and at one point she runs into the woods where she is comforted by the sound of birdsong because she used to call um, Niwo didn't have a name Niwo means fourth and he's the fourth child so she would call him by um, bird names so she's comforted by the bird song, and she has another encounter with the bears where she advises them to stay away from hunter's traps and asks them to share the gift of medicine with her. Um, later, Pinch, her younger brother, his feet are burned by hot sap, and Omakeos tends to them and treats the burns, which is her first experience as a healer. So sadly, Andeg leaves the family pretty soon afterwards. It's a very sweet scene. He brings Omakeos twigs and little scraps of bark for them to build a nest together <laughs> I know. and she's like i can't build a nest with you i'm so sorry and then a little bit later he this flock of crows is flying low and Andeg just takes off and joins them and omakeas is obviously incredibly sad but she reflects that like Andeg, she couldn't help being just who she was that just like he was a crow and could not become <laughs> could not become a person any more than she could become a crow. Um, she cannot help being who she is, Omakeos. Yes. The family rebuilds the summer birch bark house and Omakeos has a conversation with old Tallow. And the woman reveals that Omakeos was the abandoned girl from the prologue whose family died of smallpox. And this gave Omakeos immunity to the disease and is the reason why she survived the outbreak this past winter that infected her whole family and killed baby Niwo. So um, this is how Omakeos finds out that she is adopted. And in this way, her life comes full circle because she was taken in by her adoptive mother and Day-Day, and then she would eventually care for them when they became sick. And so the next morning, Omakeos goes into the woods to reflect on and celebrate her identity, knowing that the spirit of her baby brother is with her always. I really liked this book. Me too. That that ending, man. I know. I know. I love, I really liked that, I mean, it's pretty obvious yeah. when you're reading that in all likelihood, the baby from the beginning is Omakeos. But you're just wondering, like, whether or not she knows that, you know, whether or not it's something that she grew up knowing. And I like that there's no real conflict around learning this. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's not really a sense of pain or betrayal from her family for not having mentioned it to her. It just seems so natural, the way that she fits into their lives and is their child. I don't know. Would you say that you got a similar feeling? Yeah, it was surprising to me because at first when old Tallow started telling her this, I was like, okay, you're just really 
this is happening all right like we're just gonna blow up this girl's world <laughs> yeah i kind of thought this would be like a I don't know, like a sit-down family meeting situation with like a mock. Yeah, damn. Old Tello probably should have run that by them first. Yeah. Fair you know, point. Like, but you know, Old Tello is the one who went back to Spirit Island and rescued Oma Chaos. Hmm. Her husband was one of the fur traders who left her behind, and Old Tello went back to the island, brought Oma Chaos home, and then left her husband. <laughs> yeah, and told him to get the fuck out. <laughs> But yeah, so I guess Old Tallow feels like it's her right to tell the story since she's the one who saved Oma Chaos's life. But yeah, it is it is nice that Oma Chaos doesn't feel like a real... I mean, you can tell that she, it's like weird and hard for her and she's having trouble processing it and, and like she's shocked at first. But she quickly seems able to like integrate it into her sense of self and see it as, I don't know... Just it, another part of yeah. her... Yeah, it's not horribly painful and disruptive um, in the way that secret adoptions that are revealed often are in books. It didn't feel, I don't know, it didn't feel particularly cheap. Mm -hmm. So do we want to share some parts that we particularly loved about the book? For sure. From the first page, I was like, oh, damn, okay. <laughs> yeah. So the prologue is titled The Girl from Spirit Island, and it opens with the only person left alive on the island was a baby girl. And they talk about um, seeing this baby who's whimpering and pitiful. And I, you know, it's a very, it pulls you in and it's, the image is horrifying. All the fires in the village were cold. The dead lay sadly in blankets, curled as though sleeping. Smallpox had killed them all. And then there's just this poor baby among the bodies who, according to the men, looks sick and looks tired. And... Then they leave her there. They say, let her sleep. And they just leave the baby behind. And Erdrick writes, birds were singing dozens of tiny white-throated sparrows. The trilling, rippling sweetness of their songs contrasted strangely with the silent horror below. It's good. Yeah. So this was another one of my favorite parts, which Terry is going to read. And it happens at the end of the book. I love how the prologue and then the last chapter of the book kind of bring the story around into a, a circle because it uh, we start off talking about the girl from Spirit Island and we finish there too and it also I think works well with the nature of the narrative which is not necessarily like your traditional rising action climax falling action it's more of like a, a cyclical narrative which mm -hmm. we have from the the seasons you know and there's a real sense of balance and harmony and patterns. And so anyway, I think that the way that the book ends kind of where it began is really lovely. And Oma Chaos tries to remember some of her earliest memories of being a baby on that island. And yeah, that's just one of my favorite parts of the book. Terry, can you read it? Absolutely. Uh, it was spring, she said softly. Zigun. Oh, ah, said Old Tallow in surprise, peering closely at her. You remember? The birds, said Oma Chaos. I remember the birds, the songs of the birds. Oh, ah, Tallow was excited. I'd forgotten myself. There were birds on that island singing so prettily, so loudly. Too small to eat. The little birds with white throats, those sweet spring cries. Eh, my girl, you remember them. They kept me alive, says Oma Chaos to herself, not quite understanding her own words. 
I remember their song because their song was my comfort, my lullaby. They kept me alive. Yeah. I also really enjoy in the book the way that, uh, like obviously from this plot summary, it sounds like an extremely sad book, and it is. But there is a lot of levity in it and humor, which I love Mm -hmm. that Louise Erdrich talked about that in her interview that we mentioned earlier. She talks about how Native people have a wonderful sense of humor, and that's something that often gets kind of left out of stories about them. And so, you know, Ondeg the Crow allows for, like, wonderful moments of levity. And then you also have stories that aren't necessarily funny, but, like, really entertaining and intriguing stories, Mm -hmm. like kind of ghost stories or stories about spirits or ancestors that the older generations tell the children. Uh, Those were some of my favorite parts. It felt like it reminded me a lot of sitting on, like, your grandparents' lap or your parents' lap and them telling you a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's wonderful. And, <laughs> like, again, it is a sad book, like Sarah said, but there's so much love and connection and family in it that you feel that, I think, much stronger than you feel the sadness. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Louise Erdrich. Is like, you can see that she was a poet, is mm-hmm. a poet. Her writing is very lyrical at times and has beautiful imagery. And I loved this one scene in particular where Nokomas is asking or praying for support throughout the winter from the food and from the world. She spoke to the creator. We are very small, she said, just human. Help us to live this winter through. Come to us, especially during the harshest moon, the crust on the snow moon, when so often meat is scarce, when the ice is too thick to catch many fish, when disease breaks us and the windigo spirit, the hungry one, comes stalking from house to Ashinabe house. And it says her voice was soft but deep and troubled. Stillness swirled around the little cabin when she finished. It was as though everyone's heart were touched a little by the coming cold, as though a shadow of the windigo swept across their minds. Omakeos shivered. I love that too, and I love how Omakeos and Nokomis have this connection as a healer and a healer in training. Mm-hmm. And sort of an ability to see and communicate with the world around them. Like Nokomis hears the medicines. Omakeos has this connection with the natural world, with the bears, with the birds who kept her alive. Mm-hmm. I just love the way uh, Nokomis says, we are very small, just human. I yeah. just think that's so... Oh, it made me want to cry. Just human. That's one of my favorite parts, too, about it. You know, and it, I feel like it contrasts so sharply with the white colonizers, you mm-hmm. know? With who, the taking with the, and acquiring more and more. I mean, people who saw themselves as entitled to killing all the buffalo, you know, like wiping out entire species of animals because you're at the top of the food chain. And instead, you see in Nicomas and in Omakeos' family such a deep respect for the animals. Mm -hmm. There's the scene where Dede goes, um, after Nicomas' dream, he goes to, to hunt one horn, the buck, and he gets dressed and he prepares to, I think they said, meet his spirit, meet the spirit of the buck. Which I thought was a wonderful notion and image, and I don't know. You can really feel the the love and the respect that's in all parts of you know how this family 
lives and survives. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So now it's time for our favorite saggy. And now a word from us kids. There we go. Although I will say, I don't think that this book has a great number of hilarious responses. Or does it? No, it doesn't. No. It didn't have that many reviews on Dogo Books. Some of them appear to be from adults. Yeah. We've already got two perfectly good adults talking this whole time. <laughs> all right. But Jellybean25 says, we read this book in class. It was really interesting and we all cried. I'm so glad our teacher chose this book for us. Four stars. Aw. Jellybean, I love that for you. <laughs> I can definitely see children crying at this book. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Sabrina101 said... We were reading this book at school. It was really interesting book. Lewis Erdick, he chews words carefully. This book was well-written. Um, small correction, it's Louise Erdrich, not Lewis Erdrich. She's yeah, she really just rewrote that whole... <laughs> yeah. The entire author. It's also she very like, nah. very funny that like her sentence about choosing words carefully is the sentence yeah. where none of the words are correct. <laughs> Oh, I love it. She's uh, right, though. I'll give her that. Yeah, I mean, she's right about Louise. So, and then she says, spoil alert, it's mostly about a girl named Oma Chaos and her fake family <laughs> living in a palace, I think she means place, called today Lake Superior. I like to imagine that that's the spoiler alert. Yeah. That it's like, you know, what it says in the blurb on the back, yeah. except for the fake family part. I guess that's the spoiler alert. I guess so. Amazing um, way to say it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, adoption maybe is like the less <laughs> hurtful way to describe what happened. But sure, fake family. Omake's, her family one day got smallpox from a visitor, but Omake's did not get it because she already got it. But Omake's, she doesn't know that that is not her real family. So one day, Old Tallow, a family member, she told Emma Chaos that this is not her real family. Oma Kays, she really liked this family and all. And I'm just telling you guys this, and if you want to actually read the book, you should get it. It's really good. I recommended this book for ages nine plus. Five stars. <laughs> I love the defensiveness of like, and I'm just telling you guys this. Yeah. Like, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just giving you a little plot summary. <laughs> I also... Like, so she says, Omakase, who I assume is Omakaos. Omakase, she really liked this family and all. <laughs> like, in the past tense, as if now she's going to have to leave, you know? Like, now the jig is up. <laughs> it's too bad. Like, this is like a Baudelaire situation. Yeah. Like, oh, bummer. Someone call Mr. Poe. Oh, my God. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, I think the bulk of the review. I can stand behind it. Sure. The sentiment is correct. So since we, since there weren't a lot of kid reviews on Dogo Books, I was forced to go to Goodreads and read reviews written by adults about their children's experience. So, you know, I'd prefer to not have to use the middleman of parents. I'd love to get this straight from the source, right from the yeah, kids. Like but alas. So here's a review from Hillary. So Hillary said, did not finish. I started this as a read aloud and my daughter didn't enjoy this, so continued reading to myself, but found I couldn't get to know the characters and was not enjoying the hunting element of this book. I did expect a book about a Native American family to have some detail of this kind, but certainly for the first third of the book, this was the main content. 
Okay, sorry. I was disappointed there was virtually no details of gathering. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so we know where she stands. <laughs> In the great hunting versus gathering debate. <laughs> Uh, she said, berry picking is briefly mentioned, but leads straight to an incident where finding where finding the berry is missing. Um, okay, I don't know that how much we need to describe the berry pick. Do you not know how to pick berries? Yeah, also, like, the incident with Pinch where he picks a bunch of berries and then eats them all and gets in trouble. Like, that's a fairly significant scene. I don't know how many, like, I don't think burying is that interesting. I'm sorry, I think right? hunting is more interesting than burying. <laughs> I, also, I, I don't agree. know that burying is a verb, but I'm, but I'm doubling <laughs> down. She says, in one sentence, the rice paddocks are mentioned. I would love to have heard about those. Perhaps they are described in the later part of the book I missed. <laughs> okay, well, then maybe you should, whatever. But I would have been very interested to hear about the harvest of this and feel that the gatherings. <laughs> Does this bitch have stock in gathering? <laughs> I feel that the gathering side of their hunter-gatherer lifestyle was missed out on. What? This book doesn't have near enough gathering. I didn't enjoy the way this was written or the subject matter, but many seem to have really enjoyed this book, so I would recommend giving it a try. Two stars. Hillary, no offense, but whatever. I'm not impressed. I just can't believe her critique of the book is like... I wish that their lives were different than they were. Like, this is historical fiction. Like, Right? Um, Doesn't it sound like she's trying to, to complain, though? Like, she was trying. Yeah. Like, there's not enough description of the gathering. It feels like me in, like, a college class where I had to say something about something I didn't really read. Yeah. You know? And I was like, well, I, I would say that the one thing that this is missing is, like, I'm wondering more about the gathering. You know? Like... I also want to say that, like, hunting is not super predominantly, like, at least not in descriptions, you know? like they Not eat, at all. They eat animals, but it's, I would not say that it's, like, she says it takes up most of the first third of the book, and I would vehemently disagree. I would say it is much more about preparation, because this is told from Omakeas's point yeah. of view, and she's not hunting. Right. Like, I mean, there's the scene where they catch the birds, I guess. But, like, if anything, I would say that most of the talk about food is about, like, preparation. I, I'm sorry. This is a deeply confusing review to me. <laughs> oh, my All God. Right. I just think it's so, it's also weird because it's, like, they're not hunter-gatherers. Like, that's actually yeah. not at all the time period we're dealing with. No. Like, they, are, they are settled and engaging in agriculture. Yeah, this is like exactly. the 1850s. They're not. <laughs> yes, we're not in the Bronze Age anymore. Catch up. Oh my god. Ay ay ay. Whatever. Uh, shall we hear from Emily next? Yes. So Emily offers a contrasting point of view. She says, "I read this aloud with my ten-year-old, and I loved the hunting." No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> More My blood. Only <laughs> Less gathering. I thought they gathered so much. <laughs> Too much, you might say. Okay, what Emily actually said is, she <laughs> said, I read this aloud with my 10-year-old and asked for her rating. She said the first half was a four-star, but the second half was only 1.5. I frequently see people recommending this book for very young children. I can't understand that. 
The writing is beautiful and I enjoyed the story, but oh my goodness, it's so sad. I would not recommend this to a child younger than 10. My 10 year old found it devastating, hence the low rating, three stars. Okay, but finding a book devastating is not It's not a bad a reason. Thing. It's not, it's quite a good thing, really. Yeah. Also, I don't know, I think people underestimate kids a lot. Omakias is eight. <laughs> Right. I think I think this book could easily be read to a child younger than 10. I think it should be read to a child younger than 10. Yeah. Um, there are some things that would just be confusing. I don't know, just language. Like, lyrically, it's, you know, it's a pretty rich text, I think. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that, like, story-wise, I don't think that plot-wise, it's not a good fit for young children. No, I, I agree. And also, children's stories... A family member dying is a very, very common occurrence in yeah. children's stories. I mean, even just like, you know, how do so many fairy tales start? <laughs> exactly. Instant orphaned. Boom. <laughs> and I will say that like in this book, it is particularly devastating more so than it is in a lot of children's books that I read. And I think that that's just a testament to Louise Erdrich's writing. But again, I don't think that that's a reason to keep it from your kid. But, you know, I'm not a parent, so whatever. Exactly. Not exactly as in don't talk if you don't have kids, because I talk all the time and I don't have kids. I mean, exactly as in <laughs> <laughs> I think that this book is definitely accessible for yeah. 10 and a little younger. It kind of goes back to, like, this conversation that we've, not we, like you and me specifically, but, like, as a culture we've been having last few years of like when is too young in quotation marks to start yeah. talking to your to talking to kids about racism you know because a lot of white parents don't want to talk about it with their white kids too young because they're like it's upsetting it'll distress them it's um, yeah and of course the fact is that for kids who are people of color they don't get to choose when they learn about it it's something that exactly the violence of white supremacy it's just an experience yeah, and so, I mean, I think that there is value in a child learning about yeah. the horrible things that happen well, that's and why continue it to grinds happen in this country. My class for the last two years, this is my third year teaching, we have the big talk. We do it after we end our Jamestown unit and we talk about Pocahontas and how she was kidnapped, you know, and, and what the, the white settlers did to the Powhatan and but where then I just give them a brief run through of various atrocities you know, we talked We talked about the deliberate slaughter of the buffalo. Mm -hmm. We talked about smallpox. We talked about, you know, the things that I have to teach are in some ways so frustrating. Like I have to teach U.S. symbols, you know, which includes Mount Rushmore. But if I'm going to talk about Mount Rushmore, obviously I'm going to talk about mm. the backstory of Mount Rushmore. Mm -hmm. So we talk about how it's the Black Hills, how it was stolen, and they're able to talk about this stuff because they can understand these things. You know, I led it into, I was like, there was a promise that was broken. This land belonged to somebody else. You know, they took it from them. And now, now my kids won't call it, some of my kids don't call it Mount Rushmore. They just call it the Black Hills, which is very exciting. Oh, that's cool. And some of, I have a few girls in my class particularly have caught on to this. We're very, once we learned the name of this area, Seneca Maka, have been consistently calling it that <laughs> instead of Virginia. I'm like, by all means. But yeah, it's, it just, it grinds my gears that like, I'm supposed to teach Mount, the concept of Mount Rushmore, not the history of it, or Jamestown, which the kids, 
just time frame wise have no conception of or you know the language the just the understanding of white settlers that confuses them because to their knowledge america has always looked like this mm -hmm. i'm like we need to start with much more base level introductions to race and to racism it's not that they can't understand this it's that you're trying to start them with jamestown mm -hmm. and then get into the the rest of it like in seventh grade i don't know it bugs me also learning the truth doesn't have to be so upsetting and shocking if you learn it over the course of years your worldview doesn't have to be shattered if you never believe the myth to begin with oh i love that that's awesome. Exactly. Exactly. Because the way I see it, if I can get this stuff in on the ground floor, then I'm expecting the teachers later on to do the work too. This is a process. I don't know. It's just very frustrating. It is. Um, but on a better note, Jessica Woodbury on Goodreads said, when we started this book, I wasn't sure if the kids would go with it. A lot of the books we read are pretty action-packed, which helps since we only read 10 to 15 pages or so a night. But they settled right in, even though the first half of the book is not really about plot at all, just letting you live the daily life of Oma Chaos and her family. By the second half of the book, I no longer encountered the usual, can we skip reading tonight questions I get every few nights. We burned through it, even the extra sad parts. This is often positioned as an alternative to the Little House books, which it absolutely is, but it's also a lot more than that. It has its own slow rhythm that immerses you in the time and place before you realize it's happening. It's a little embarrassing that this is my first Erdrich. She's been on my list for ages, but I was very impressed with this and can't wait to venture into her adult fiction. The kids would like to continue the series as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I love her point you, that Jessica. this is more than just an alternate, like that this is more than just a little, yeah. an alternate little house, because it is. I mean, it's like Louise Erdrich said, that wasn't actually even on her mind when she started writing the books. It was not trying to be a response or a rewrite to this classic. It's just she's telling a story that it happens around the same time period. Exactly. Like not everything needs to be through the context of a white lens, that this is somehow a response. It's not. It's a story. Exactly. It's people's lives. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really a really good point because I think it does the novel a, an injustice if you only are framing it as something that couldn't exist without this yes, prior Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm glad her kids liked it. I hope that she read them the rest of the series. Continuing on the conversation we were having about education and the role that this text or other texts about Native Americans can have in schools. There was this really thorough article that I read called A Sea of Good Intentions, Native Americans and Books for Children by Melissa K. Thompson, and it was published in 2001 in The Lion and the Unicorn. Melissa K. in this article, she examines children's novels that were published in the 90s and that feature American Indian characters. And she finds, unsurprisingly, that the books contain stereotypes and historical inaccuracies that provide harmful stories to young readers. And she provides a link from these stereotypes about Native Americans in these children's books to the ways in which this, these stereotypes and this thinking about Native Americans has influenced politics and specifically like Supreme Court rulings and U.S. federal policy towards Native Americans. So she's not saying that these novels cause this thinking or that these novels 
you know, are the cause of Supreme Court rulings or anything like that, but just that the novels replicate these stereotypes that have been and are, and are continue to be used to justify the genocide of Native Americans in this country. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the Birchbark House briefly as kind of an alternative text, as kind of an antidote to some of these more offensive and stereotypical books. And of course, a, a major point to consider about these books that she's writing about is that they are written by authors who are not Native American and who often don't seem to know actually very much about the topic that they're writing about. And she says that this is really dangerous because, quote, um, the constant inclusion of barbaric, drunken, childish, self-denigrating amorins and children's books begins the process of cultural definition before young people have any chance to experience a divergent perspective. Yes, yeah, so she talks about how, unfortunately, these books are often kind of the starting point for a lot of kids' access to understanding anything about Native American culture and that they are not a good place to start. She says, but there are tools that will help us to overcome the book industry's penchant for Indian hating. Mary Gloyne Byler's Introduction to American Indian Authors for Young Readers lays out the general terrain. Most minority groups in this country have been and are still largely ignored by the nation's major publishing houses, particularly in the field of children's books. American Indians, on the other hand, contend with a mass of material about themselves. If anything, there are too many children's books about American Indians. There are too many books featuring painted, whooping, befeathered Indians closing in on too many forts, maliciously attacking peaceful settlers, or simply leering menacingly from the background. Too many books in which white benevolence is the only thing that saves the day for the incompetent, childlike Indians. Too many stories setting forth what is best for American Indians. Which I think is, that was a, a really important point. And yeah, I mean, it's true that throughout American literature, and in movies too, American Indians are used so much as a plot device. Yeah. The issue isn't, in this case, invisibility, or it is, but it's invisibility of like actual authentic portrayals. And she, she provides quotes and evidence in this article. It's really worth a read if this is something you're interested in. Of books, you know, like well-received books that were written in the late 90s by kind of famous children's authors like Anne Rinaldi. And it's galling how offensive they are. You know, you have books about Indian boarding schools that don't really provide a negative picture of the experience, that don't address the abuse and the death and the cultural genocide that was taking place. You know, I mean, it's, or stories about like white settler children rescuing um, a Native American child and like befriending them, but the descriptions mm -hmm. of these characters are so animalistic and so racist. And, you know, these are books that were like critically acclaimed and well received as recently as like 1999. Mm -hmm. And I really do hope and think that this is something that is changing in children's literature. But it was distressing to me because I really liked historical fiction when I was a kid. And I'm sure I read a lot of books that had really racist portrayals of Native Americans. And I, I don't have any, like, I, I don't know how that affected my thinking as a yeah, kid. Yeah, exactly. 
Do you want to say this last quote from the article here? She writes, Good intentions, whether from Justice Marshall or Anne Rinaldi, and artistic license, whether from writers or their critics, will not suffice as excuses for abusive treatment of the young. Writes native novelist Jimmy Durham, Literary license is supposed to be a means to get at and complete the truth. When it is used as a means of covering over the truth or standing it squarely on its head, license should be understood as more a function of propaganda than of literature. Good point. Yeah. I, I love that. She talks in the article about that some people will say that, you know, that these books that are very racist, it shouldn't be that we don't read them to kids or that we don't let kids read them because, you know, they we should let people have artistic license, freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that explanation of, of why like literary license isn't actually a fair or effective way to think about this is important. And also like she mentions, you know, you can have these racist books on the shelves and then have books like The Birch Bark House to act as an antidote. Of course, the problem with that is that at least at this point in American literature, the racist books far outnumber the mm -hmm. books like The Birch Bark House, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I don't know, I think there's an argument for just not having the racist books in the school library because yeah. you don't know that the kid is going to know to go back for a different perspective. Or, you know, I think that if you're going to have your child encounter a racist text, you need to be willing to do the work to make sure that, that it's framed correctly and that they can understand it as a tool for learning about racism so that they don't internalize it as something that's true, but can see it as something to be critiqued. And a lot of kids are not going to have a parent reading the book with them who is willing to or able to do that. Exactly. Yeah, did you ever read, now I'm curious to go back and reread it because I don't remember really anything about it, but I'm sure it was very racist. The Indian in the Cupboard? Yes, I did. And it is very racist. Good job. You're right. <laughs> like, doesn't he? Wow, I forgot all about the Indian in the cupboard. Yeah, He's a toy who comes to life, right? He's a toy, yes. The, he has, the boy has this magic cupboard, and when he puts various toys in it, they come, I guess, out of whatever alternate reality they exist in as people. And ooh, the first person he put, or the first toy that he puts inside is a Native American. Yes, it is deeply offensive. And doesn't he like attack the boy like i feel like i remember yes him being he's definitely violent. like he is very violent mm -hmm. you are correct what the fuck? I, like we read that as a class in fourth grade and it was like yeah accompanied we did too it accompanied our jamestown unit oh no i know it was like oh why? no yeah we read that in class too yeah that was a rough one i also and they there were like several of those like they were they had four sequels oh dear there were lots of them. Yeah, and he has to, you know, he's he's like, he's a savage. He believes that the boy who finds him is like a god. He's oh, stupid. God. Yeah, it's horrifying. I have another thing I want to talk about on the topic of reading the book with children. I found an article or an essay in Rethinking Schools, which was written by Rachel Klaus, who is a teacher librarian in San Francisco. And she wrote an essay called Reading Louise Erdrich to My Son. And so she talks about bringing home the Birch Bark House to read to her eight-year-old son, who's named Seeger. And she notes that some people cautioned her that the book was too sad to read to a small child, but she decided to read it anyway. And her son loved the series. She writes, Seeger and I cried together when Oma Chaos's baby brother died of smallpox in the Birch Bark House. 
We had several conversations about the disease and how and why it is transmitted accidentally and intentionally by Europeans to indigenous people all across the Americas. When I choked up the other night as the U.S. government forces Omakeas and her family from their island home, and they must leave their dog behind because it can't fit in the canoe, Seeger gently took the book from me and continued reading out loud until I could gather myself enough to continue. These are really good books, Mom, Seeger told me more than once. He's clearly not too young to hear this historical truth, even while it is difficult for me to tell it. Urgic's stories relate painful experiences, but they are also full of joy and humor. I think this complexity is what makes them so compelling. I completely agree. Yeah. So I, I wanted to share that as kind of an alternate perspective to the parents on Goodreads who didn't like the book. While we're on the topic of talking about difficult truths, we can also talk a bit more about the historical context. This book obviously deals with smallpox, and so I thought it would be a good idea to talk a little bit about that disease and consider how... Louise Erdrich addresses that tragedy Mm -hmm. in her writing. I read an article in The Atlantic by Jeffrey Osler that's called Disease Has Never Been Just Disease for Native Americans, and he wrote it towards the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic because, of course, Native American communities were hit especially hard by the COVID Mm -hmm. pandemic. And so it's an article that kind of considers that issue from a historical point of view. And specifically, he talks a bit about complicating the idea that we have of the virgin soil epidemic. He writes, until recently, histories of disease in Native Americans have emphasized, quote, virgin soil epidemics. According to this theory, popularized in Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, When Europeans arrived in the Western Hemisphere, they brought diseases, particularly measles and smallpox, that indigenous people had never experienced. Because they had no immunity to these diseases, so the theory goes, the resulting epidemic took the lives of 70% or more of the native population throughout the Americas. New research, however, provides a much more complicated picture of disease in American Indian history. This research shows that virgin soil epidemics were not as common as previously believed and shifts the focus to how diseases repeatedly attacked native communities in the decades and centuries after Europeans first arrived. Post-contact diseases were crippling, not so much because indigenous people lacked immunity, but because the conditions created by European and U.S. colonialism made native communities vulnerable. The virgin soil epidemic hypothesis was valuable in countering earlier theories that attributed Native American population decline to racial inferiority, but its singular emphasis on biological difference implied that population collapses were nothing more than historical accidents. By stressing the importance of social conditions created by human decisions and actions, the new scholarship provides a far more disturbing picture. It also helps us understand the problems facing Native communities today as they battle the novel coronavirus. Yeah. And so he goes on to talk about how the disruption from war helped facilitate the spread of disease, how also, he says, when smallpox finally hit the Southeast, it spread rapidly from Virginia to East Texas across networks created by an English trade in native captives for enslavement in their coastal and West Indies colonies. Raiding, capturing, and transporting human bodies created pathways for the smallpox virus. And additionally, forced removals caused by the Indian Removal Acts forced Native Americans into concentration camps and, quote, trails of tears where disease spread easily. For example, when the Cherokee were forced from their homelands in Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, the death toll was about 25% of those forced from their homes. So 
The virgin soil epidemic hypothesis is not a sufficient explanation to explain just how devastating these diseases were because um, there were social and political conditions created by the white settlers that uh, facilitated the devastation of these diseases among Native American populations. The shifting the blame, you know, Mm -hmm. that this was an accident, that this was just because it was almost as if they weren't prepared enough. Right. Yeah, it gives, um, he talks about how it, it the this theory, while there is some truth to it, you know, he's not saying that it's completely false, but it's just incomplete. That if you think of that as being the whole reason why this genocide occurred, it gives colonizers oh. an alibi. Exactly. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that's a really important part to keep in mind. I mean, when you think about communities that are routinely have access to worse nutrition, worse health care, worse economic prospects, then, you know, you, you create a situation in which disease is going to be able to be spread more easily. And as I was doing more research for this podcast, you know, it was interesting because we know that disease was in some cases spread intentionally to these people. You know, we have at least one documented case of white settlers using smallpox blankets as a form of biological warfare. And it's unknown like how much that was used or how effective it was, but certainly the disease was understood to be a um, a weapon. Uh, But then also they talked about how once a smallpox vaccine was created, the federal government was very efficient at administering it to specific tribes. Basically because smallpox and disease was making it very difficult to relocate these tribes because Uh, it's very hard to relocate a community that is suffering in that way. And also like, you know, white settlers don't want to come in contact with these people because they have this disease. And so they would, the federal government would work very hard to inoculate the tribes that were viewed as cooperative. Mm. And so, and then they did not work as hard at all to inoculate the tribes that were viewed as more combative because it would be better if those tribes died. And again, none of this is surprising, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, it's painful to hear, but this would be far less shocking to people our age if from an early age, we had been taught some degree of this, you know? Yeah. Would you say your worldview doesn't have to shatter if it was, if you were never taught the myth? Yeah, and now when we have like all of these parents in schools freaking out about their kids learning about like history and racism, it's like you're yeah. freaking out because no one told you the truth. Exactly. Hi, um, yeah, yeah. It's very painful, and this book doesn't deal with the forced dispossession of Omakeas' family or her tribe, but that's coming in the sequels. We do get a hint that, you know, the white settlers are encroaching. At one point, one of the characters says that he thinks that they, the white men must have starved to death in a previous life because they're always hungry for more. And so you get that kind of ravenousness and that that um, danger. I also found one article but written by Elizabeth 
Gargano, which was published in 2006 by Children's Literature Association Quarterly, and it's called Oral, Native, and Ojibwe Story Cycles in Louise Erdrich's The Birchbark House and the Game of Silence, which is one of the sequels to The Birchbark House. I like this article because it provides some insight into the ways in which Ojibwe storytelling traditions factor into how The Birchbark House is told as a story. And so she says, drawing on the conventions of oral storytelling, Urgic repeatedly interrupts both novels' forward momentum with self-contained traditional tales that emphasize cultural continuity while also serving to explain and contextualize present action. Rather than foregrounding a linear, plot-driven narrative, Urgic subtly interweaves events into a natural and spiritual landscape where change is cyclical and at times illusory. Even the most dramatic actions are woven like bright threads into nature's dense and variegated tapestry. Further, Erdrich's haunting and lyrical narratives affirm a collective cultural vision beyond the individual and consciousness of her fictive protagonist. Incorporating story cycle elements and subordinating linear narrations to a cyclical narrative structure, Erdrich's novels for children reflect an Ojibwe worldview that affirms gratitude to nature for all its gifts, the preciousness of communal knowledge and traditions, and the integration of daily activities with sacred experience. Thus, Erdrich's work also implicitly critiques Euro-American assumptions about humanity's supremacy over nature, which we talked about, and the importance of individualism, as well as a generalized Western tendency to expect stark divisions between sacred and secular realms. I like that too because um, when I was first reading this book, I was having a little bit of trouble sometimes like situating the narrative because it is a little bit unlike most other children's books, at least that we've read so far for this podcast, which, you know, mm-hmm. open up usually with some kind of action to draw the reader in. And then they're quite plot driven, you know, and this book is more atmospheric. Mm-hmm. It's educational in a way that is interesting and not you know, boring. And I could kind of compare it to a book like Little Women. The sort of episodic. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to like chart the plot in a traditional yeah. arc. Because, I agree. Yeah, it's more about kind of like a day in the life. But this book is e- does even more than that because of the way that, she, like she says, the way that it is, I think, very cyclical and satisfying. And the way that also different voices come in. We have the storytelling, you know, stories from Day Day and Nicolmus and and also we'll sometimes just like pop into another character's head for just a little bit. You know, we'll like leave Omakayas's point of view and hear from Little Pinch or someone else. Mm-hmm. Oh, Little Pinch. We didn't really get into him, but I really appreciate how Omakayas just really doesn't like her brother like that. Yeah. Like, she loves baby It's pretty Milo. realistic. Yeah, but she just really can't stand her brother, Pinch. And it is very realistic. And based off of how Pinch behaves, I'm not sure I could stand him either. Yeah. Eats all the damn berries. Forgive me. I have eaten the berries that were on. That you were probably saving for winter. <laughs> for winter. <laughs> He also, doesn't he, like, come across a deer that's already dead and then stab it and then say that he killed it? Yeah. Then he takes it back because he promptly burns his feet off with hot sap. That's right. Also, I was concerned because they'd talked before about an illness that, like, a lot of the rabbits had where they were basically rotten inside. I was like, please do not just eat this dead deer you found. That's what I, I was like. You don't know how long that thing has been dead. Like, you don't know what it died of. 
please don't That's lie a about. very dangerous game. Yeah. Literally dangerous game. Oh my god! <laughs> you said it. Okay, so do we want to do maybe like lessons and rating? Sure. Yeah, so what lessons can we learn from Omakaya? The importance of listening and observing, I think. The connections that she has with the world around her help her to not just grow, but, you know, to support her family, to even keep them alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way that she sees herself and her, you know, her whole family and her whole tribe see themselves as just one part of the natural world. Yes. They're, they're not outside of it. They're not above it. Exactly. They're not all powerful. We are small. Just yeah. human. I yes, mean, that's a lesson. That yes. right there. That you are small and that you should ask for help and receive help and offer help. Mm-hmm. You probably shouldn't feed baby bears. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a no. And I would not count on, like, speaking respectfully to a bear to be like, you're saving grace. I mean, it worked for Oma Chaos, but we do get the sense that she like it has an ability to communicate with bears in a way that is very special that I'm guessing I probably don't have. Yeah, I would advise you not to attempt the bear communication. But day. I don't know. I'm kind of partial to the pet crow. Big fan. Yes. So the lesson is really just pick and choose your surprise pets carefully. Yeah. Perhaps maybe not ones that will grow up to be twice your size. <laughs> I, um, in one of the interviews I read with Louise Erdrich, she said that the Ondeg was based on a true story because she took in like a, an orphaned crow baby and raised it and it would sit on her, um, either she said her shoulder or her head, I think, while she wrote. Oh. <laughs> but then she said, oh my. then she said, but you shouldn't do that. You should take it to a, re- a wildlife rehabilitation center. And I know that cognitively, I know that. But oh my god, I know. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I mean, you remember if... when I gave our Tupperware to that raccoon? Oh my god, I was thinking about that when she was playing <laughs> with the bears. I was like, oh my god, this is so Terry. <laughs> uh, any other lessons? Sometimes dreams can be useful. Yeah, not d- mine though. <laughs> <laughs> my dreams are just upsetting, but in Amakeos's family they can be really prophetic and helpful so yes so if your family has wonderful prophetic dreams listen to them uh if you just have creepy weird dreams like the rest of us (laughs) maybe seek therapy all right sarah is it time to rate this book it sure is excellent we are going to be rating this book today out of 10 baby crows sarah take it away I would give this book a 10 out of 10 baby crows, but there just wasn't enough gathering in it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just needed more berry content. Yeah, oh my Um, god. I have a lot of stock in big berry, so... (laughs) Driscoll's gal myself, so... Oh my god. Um, Yes, no, this book is... I think it's 10 out of 10 baby crows for me. Excellent. I will also give this book 10 out of 10 baby crows. Sarah, tell us where they can find us. Yes. So y'all can find us on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess. And you can email us at reading during recess pod at gmail.com. Please like, follow, subscribe, retweet, 
recommend us to a friend, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yes. We love reviews. Yeah. Um, flyer your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of those banners that you can put on the back of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> or skywriting. <laughs> and all you friends of bears out there, stay reading. 